everyone. Welcome back to Super pumped to join us today. today. I have Dr. Jerome Creech. He's a professor at Pittsburgh um, Seminary. Today we're going to be talking about Old Testament violence and questions like such as did God command genocide and looking at specific interpretations regarding old, the Old Testament. So, um, Jerome, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, I'm super excited for this conversation because I think Old Testament violence is in looking at violence in the Bible is a super important question and one we're thinking about. Um, so to start things off, Jerome, could you just give like a brief introduction and tell us like who you are and what do you do? Sure. Uh, well, as you said, I'm a professor of Old Testament at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Uh, I'm not from Pittsburgh, though. I grew up in Western North Carolina. Uh, for me, growing up, church was everything. It was we were there all the time. So Bible study, Sunday school, uh, worship—you know—all that was uh, uh, just central to life. Uh, so when I was about 15 years old, I felt a, a call to ministry, and at that time, about all I knew that you could do in ministry was either be a pastor, an evangelist, or a missionary. So I was sort of thinking in those terms. But when I went to college, uh, I became uh, really enthralled with the work of my professors. And one in particular, uh, he was a theologian and he was a great teacher, very charismatic and in love with the material that he was teaching. And so I started thinking that uh, I think I want to do what he does. I went away to seminary, uh, still thinking that. And uh, in seminary, I uh, wondered what area I would focus on. And when I started with Hebrew and the Old Testament, I just fell in love with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, particularly then when I, I had a, uh, a Hebrew seminar on the Psalms. And, and that really got me hooked uh, because I think recognizing that the Old Testament is the foundation of our faith and that the Psalms then particularly were the center of our Bible and um, in, every, in every conceivable way, um, I, I knew I had to focus on that. And so that I went from seminary uh, to do a PhD with a study with a scholar named James Luther Mays. So some of your listeners or um, might know him as the creator of the interpretation Bible, uh, creation commentary series and uh, the editor of the journal interpretation, they're quite well known. And, uh, and he was an expert on the Psalms and focused the last part of his career on that. So I did a PhD with him. And um, most of my publications have been on the book of Psalms, but this interest in violence in the Bible developed a number of years ago. And so I've, I've worked on that as well. Yeah, so today we're gonna be looking at um, did God command violence and violence in scripture? You wrote a book titled Violence in Scripture. Um, mm -hmm. So looking at this super important topic. So yeah. I think it might be helpful to start off. Could you talk a little bit like about your story and kind of like what your views are regarding like violence in scripture and how that's kind of like changed yeah. over time, if it has um, kind of like a little bit of your story with regards to this specific topic? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, there was a time when I probably didn't think that much about it, uh, mm -hmm. frankly. I remember, uh, like many people, reading through the book of Joshua as just part of my regular Bible reading, Bible study, and just reading it straight through and thinking, oh my goodness, what is this? All this slaughter and killing Canaanites. And, you know, it just, it struck me as how much killing and destruction there was in the book. I, I still didn't think about it that much though, until uh, my, my mentor, James Mays, invited me to write a commentary on Joshua for the interpretation commentary series. And then I knew I had to come to terms with uh, this idea that God commanded violence, commanded the slaughter of multitudes of people and started thinking about it. And then following that, continuing to do some work on it, I was asked to do this volume on uh, violence in scripture. So that's sort of how I came to this. Now, what I think about this, let me start with uh, a, a word uh, in Hebrew, Hamas. It's the basic word for violence in the Old Testament. 
And what's interesting, I think, about that word is that it's a word that refers only to human action. With like one exception that that connects it with God, but it's almost in Lamentations. It seems it's it's sort of being not facetious, but um, complaining that God seems to be acting like a human. Humans are the ones who uh, are guilty of violence. Now, there are plenty of images, of course, of God destroying things and people, the flood story. And it's not just the Old Testament, by the way. Uh, I mean, all the, the judgment passages in the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus. Think about the book of Revelation. My goodness, anybody who thinks, you know, violence is just an Old Testament problem, read Revelation and uh, see how uh, Jesus is presented as a warlike figure at one point. So there are all these images and uh, language about destruction as well. But it seems to me the Old Testament draws a distinction uh, kind of implicitly between God dis acting destructively and violence. God's destructive activity is always in response to human violence and it's for some redemptive purpose. So it's not God acting out of control, God just being angry or anything like that, as some people, you know, sort of uh, think God is in the Old Testament or maybe in the Bible as a whole. Mm. Yeah, no, that's super interesting in thinking about like this clear difference that you're talking about with regards to this Hebrew word for like violence and stuff. So it's interesting to think about. And I do want to like, act, like affirm your view that we need to take this seriously. Like I remember like I, I went to, for high school, I went to a Christian school mm. and I had a friend in the class who like wasn't a Christian and he'd like read, like we were reading through like Joshua or Judges or something. He's reading these like extremely like violent passages out loud. I was like, what's going on here? And I was like, ah, yeah, that's interesting. And just like kept going. Like I just didn't think much of it. Mm. Um, but this is like a very serious issue. So I appreciate yeah. that. Um, so looking at like your work and how you think about this, at least from what I understand, like it seems like Genesis plays an important part um, mm -hmm. in thinking about biblical violence. So when you're looking at like Genesis, um, it's a big book. There's a lot going on. But how does that impact your idea on biblical violence, Jerome? Yeah, uh, there is a lot going on in Genesis and there's plenty of violence in Genesis. Uh, <laughs> however, however you characterize violence, there's plenty of it. Well, let me start with the first chapter. I think the first chapter of Genesis, or better, the first creation story. So Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, let's say, uh, is extremely important. It's important because it's the first thing we encounter in the Bible. And I mean, I, I think that the, the order of things in our canon is important. So therefore, the first chapter of the Bible, that first creation story, must be important because it's first. Uh, and indeed it really is. It sets the tone for everything else that we read in some ways. So the picture of God in that first story of creation is, is really unique, unique in the ancient world that is. So uh, the story is written, it seems, with knowledge of a Babylonian story of creation. The Babylonians, uh, main god was his name was Marduk and uh, the story of his create they believed he was the creator of the world and their story of him creating the world in some ways sounds nothing like anything in the Bible you know it starts with the genealogy of gods which the Old Testament doesn't have any uh, sense of that God is just God and always has been God but Marduk uh, is is born and and has this um, relationship with other deities. He's proclaimed king eventually, and as king, they appoint him to, to go out and to do battle with uh, another deity, a chaos monster named Tiamat. So he approaches her, engages her in battle, kills her, splits open her body, and from her body creates various parts of the world. Again, it sounds nothing like the Old Testament, but the order of things created is identical to that first story in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. Um, so the writer of Genesis 1 seems to know that story and probably had been an exile in Babylon and maybe had firsthand knowledge of this story as the, the Babylonians recited it or chanted it or heard it read 
during their New Year festival. Now, um, in Babylon, this story was recited in part to support the Babylonian kings because uh, Marduk was like their patron deity. And so uh, whenever they went out to do battle to conquer other people, they saw themselves as acting like Marduk. Marduk, who killed these other uh, deities to make order in the world, to rid the world of chaos, uh, they thought that's what they were doing, or at least they, they presented their conquest that way. And uh, of course, one of the, the victims of their conquest was the nation of Judah uh, and the city of Jerusalem. Uh, you know, very well-known part of the Old Testament history is the Babylonians conquering uh, Jerusalem and Judah and taking away many of the people there into exile in Babylon, 587 BC. So, so this story, well known in the ancient world and the writer of Genesis 1 seems to know it. Now, so think about how God though is presented in Genesis 1. God has no rivals. Uh, God doesn't go to war, although God does engage with disorder. That's how the story begins. Uh, when God creates, everything is disordered, water covering everything, but the Spirit of God is hovering over those waters. God establishes light and separates it from darkness. God pushes the waters back so that there's dry land, and then things begin to, life begins to spring forth. So God has no rivals. God doesn't act destructively at all, in contrast to Marduk. Not only that, um, God in Genesis 1 uses language. We often say God creates by speaking, and that's true. Uh, you know, let there be light and so on. But when God speaks, God doesn't even use commands. God uses verbs that invite the elements to participate in the creation itself. So let the earth bring forth green plants. Uh, let the waters teem with life, those kinds of statements. So it's this picture of God who acts non-violently, non-destructively, and invites the cooperation of the elements with no rivals, no combat, nothing. Um, then what many people see as the highlight of the story, the sixth day of creation, God makes human beings in God's image. Now, of course, in, in Christian theology uh, and Christian tradition, this, uh, the meaning of this passage has been discussed forever. It's, it's a very, very important passage and, and yet very slippery in meaning because it doesn't tell us what the, uh, the image of God means. It's clear, though, in the passage that humans are identified as being made in the image of God by the fact that they have dominion over the other creatures of the earth. God, God puts us on earth in God's creation to stand in for and do the work of God, if you will. That, that seems to be the implication. Mm -hmm. and, and the language used about the image of God is royal language. In every other culture in the ancient Near East, it's the king who's made in God's image. In Genesis 1, it's every human being. So what would it mean for human beings to live out this identity as being made in God's image. One of the things it must mean, I think, is that we are to act like God acts with the creation, which is not to destroy uh, or, or to exploit, but, uh, but to invite participation, to care for, you know, uh, that's the picture we have of God as creator in Genesis 1. And so if we're to somehow imitate God, uh, it seems to me that first chapter of Genesis is a great, not only picture of who God is, but a call for uh, who we should be as God's creatures, as those who got appointed, God's appointed uh, to do God's work in the world. So that first chapter, I think, is just crucially important. Uh, the second one is a lot like it. Uh, Genesis 2, 4 and following is a second story of creation that seems to be there to fill out a bit what this means for humans to be made in the image of God. Mm. 
humans are put in the garden to the translations usually read to till and keep it. But the verbs actually mean, well, um, sometimes are translated as serve, the first one, the main word for serve, from which we get nouns like servant or slave. Serve the ground and keep is a verb that often has to do with guarding, protecting, and so on. That's our role in the creation. And even the relationship between human beings is supposed to be mutual and cooperative. You know, uh, it's we get this idealistic picture of the first man and first woman in Genesis 2. Uh, when there's first only a man, God's searching for a helper. Uh, that's usually the translation. The word uh, uh, etzer uh, in Hebrew is... Uh, one that's usually used more often than not for God in the Old Testament. So it's not looking for an inferior uh, subordinate or anything. It's looking for an equal partner. And so the, the picture we get then of the creation of God's intention for us is for human beings to live together in cooperation, in peace, supporting each other and so on. The story in Genesis 3 then starts to show how that falls apart. And all the problems we have sort of un, un, unwind from that first experience of rebellion. And it just gets worse as we get to the story of the flood. So that uh, in the story of the flood, we're told that uh, violence has spread all over the earth. And that word Hamas is used there for the first time. Uh, humans, we've already had the first murder in uh, Genesis 4 when Cain kills Abel. But in chapter 6, we're told uh, that violence spreads just rampantly and God sees the earth as ruined. That That's the word that's used there. And so then God decides to take this drastic action of reversing the creation, just starting over. And that's the story of the flood. So it's a story of great destruction, but it comes out of this uh, of God observing how violent things have become and being sorry God's made these humans who've done this and thinking the only way is to uh, reboot, you know, start over. And, um, and that's what the story of the flood tells us happens. Mm. So is there anything else you want to add here, Jerome, about Genesis? Um, and, or do you want to head into the Psalms and like kind of framing this view as we're going to get, but we're building up into like interpreting um, the Canaanites. Sure. Gosh, a lot we could say about it. Mm -hmm. um, well, let me just mention one passage that it, it's uh, may be a little obscure to, to some people, but when um, Jacob in Genesis 49 gives a blessing to all of his sons and um, says a word over all of them and sort of predicts their future, uh, Simeon and Levi are singled out uh, in a negative way. Uh, they both have acted violently. And uh, there's a, a description of them that um, th their swords are instruments of violence. It, it doesn't say that swords, that weapons of any kind are necessarily evil, but the way they have used them uh, is characterized as violence. Violence seems to then be not just any destructive activity, but destructive activity that's done out of selfishness, out of a sense of uh, self-preservation, of uh, selfishness. And that's what Simeon and Levi have done. There's a story linked to this that comes just before it of uh, their sister Dinah who uh, goes out and meets the residents of Shechem and um, the son of, of Shechem rapes Dinah. So there's a horrible crime right there. Talk about violence. This kind of stuff comes up all over the, the place. Uh, but the son of Shechem goes to his father. He comes to Jacob. They want to make things right. They want to make peace. And the son of Shechem wants to marry Dinah. Now, of course, we could go into all kind of discussion about you know the place of women and how they're victims of violence 
in the ancient world and in some of these stories, that's certainly true. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, but these people want to make peace. Jacob says, yes, let's make peace. And they come to an agreement. The agreement is that all the men uh, in this family and in this um, community will be circumcised. Uh, that's their sign that they really mean business. So they're circumcised. They're all adult males when they go through this. So they're rolling around in pain, um, you know, the day after. Simeon and Levi get their swords and come in with these men completely helpless and just lay them out, slaughter them all. And at least as these story, that story is linked to the uh, words of Jacob, that's what he seems to have in mind. Uh, they're just out for revenge. Uh, they're, they're just, they just see the opportunity to, um, to kill a bunch of people. And that's what they do. It has no purpose. There's nothing redemptive about it. In fact, it's quite dishonest. And it's that kind of action that Jacob identifies as violence that he says characterizes these two brothers, at least at that time. Hmm. So there's a lot, there's a lot in Genesis and uh, the word violence comes up in some really key places and gives us this perspective on it. I think uh, that violence is something motivated by selfishness and um, self-preservation, all the things that are against God's intentions for the world. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's super good. And obviously you wrote a book, Violence in Scripture, which can help people if they want to get further into this. But we're going to move on into the Psalms here. Sure, um, yeah. you, you, you talked about um, the Psalms drawing you into this world of the Old Testament and the foundation. Yeah. So how did the Psalms, in particular like Psalm 137, um, impact your views on looking at violence in the Bible? Yeah, so uh, the, the Psalms are quite a different part of the Bible than what we we're just talking about. Here we have uh, the prayers of people crying out to God, uh, often crying out to God in, uh, in pain, having been victims of, of, of violence themselves. And uh, the problem that we sometimes encounter in the Psalms is that in the prayers, there are petitions for God to come and act against the enemy, against the one who's done the violence to the one who's praying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we sort of look at that, I think, and think, well, that's not quite what Jesus had in mind, is it? I mean, Jesus said, uh, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you and so on. Um, so, so, you know, how do, what do we make of this? Well, first of all, the prayers are completely honest. Yeah. And, and I think we need to recognize that they are coming to God with an open heart, laying all of the emotion before God, which is a very good thing to do in prayer. Second thing, though, is they're really not opposed at all to Jesus' teachings on prayer or the Apostle Paul's teachings on prayer. Uh, think about the Lord's Prayer, for example. You know, um, the, the first petition is, well, after hallowed be thy name, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, what would it take for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? There's a lot of destructive, violent activity that has to be reckoned with if that's going to be the case. And so what the psalmist is essentially praying is just what Jesus taught his disciples to pray, just what he taught us to pray. Uh, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, things are not right. The world is out of joint, and we see it because of the violent activity of those the Psalms label wicked. These are people who are not morally impure. They're people who, uh, in the Psalms, uh, they act contrary to what God wants, to what God envisions for the world. And, uh, and so the psalmist is, has been the victim of them or the community has been a victim of these kinds of people. And so petitions God to deal with them. Again, it's, it's exactly uh, 
what happens at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. You know, there is this, this ancient tradition that the Lord's Prayer is, uh, is just kind of an outline and that it gets filled out in the Psalms. And I think that's a good way to look at it uh, because um, after all, Jesus prayed the Psalms. Uh, all of his words, uh, or practically all his words on the cross were, uh, were words from the Psalms. And so he's praying these Psalms. And so the tradition of the church has been that the Psalms are indeed uh, the prayers of Jesus for this reason. Not that he wrote them, but he's embraced them and blessed them essentially by, by praying their words. So you ask about Psalm 137. It's the most difficult case, uh, maybe. Uh, there's some others that are pretty close. Yeah. Uh, the end of Psalm 139, Psalm 58, just invite people to read those and you'll find some uh, equally troubling passages, I think. Yeah. But Psalm 137 is uh, the most troubling to most people because of one particular um, statement. And uh, that is when, as the psalmist first complains about the destruction of Jerusalem, about, um, and it's set in that time after the Babylonians have conquered Jerusalem, uh, uh, raised its walls to the ground, burned the temple, taken away exiles. And the uh, recognizing that fact is a reason to lament. Mm -hmm. Then the psalmist uh, prays or says uh, against the Babylonians that um, happy are those or happy is the one who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Now, what do we make of that? That that's those are horrible words. And terrible images. Um, well, first of all, this is something the um, people of Judah probably saw and experienced when the Babylonians attacked them. I mean, we have uh, we have record at the end of Second Kings of how the king of Judah at the time, uh, two of his sons were killed in front of them, and then he his eyes were put out. You know, uh, after he witnessed it. Uh, so that kind of cruelty went on in warfare. But several important things about this. First of all, the, the psalmist is uttering these words as one who is utterly helpless. He has no ability to act on them. And he's not asking God to empower him to go and to dash babies against a rock. That's not the prayer. Um, it's, it's simply expressing to God the great pain over the loss of Jerusalem, the destruction uh, of this city and its temple and the exile of its people, uh, the most devastating event they'd ever known. And recognizing that the Babylonians regularly did this to people that they conquered. Uh, so it, it's praying out of all that anger and frustration but in, in no way is it asking God to uh, allow him to do such a thing to the Babylonians. Th these words to Babylon go nowhere except to God in prayer. And our belief is we can take anything to God in prayer. And, uh, and we should do that. And in voicing that deep, strong emotion, it's one way for us to avoid acting violently. Uh, we can say it, but then we don't do it. Uh, we turn that over to God, knowing that we are helpless. And God will deal with the Babylonians. Um, so uh, anyway, I think that's, that's my take on Psalm 137. It's, um, it's a complicated, complicated uh, psalm, and the theology of it is one, uh, by the way, it's, it's, it's one that people have not agreed on. Uh, some like John Calvin have said, oh, sure, the Babylonians deserve it and they'll get theirs in the end, uh, just exactly like the psalm says. But uh, that's not the primary sentiment of this psalm. 
and the church of the of the church's take on it that is and the church has never stopped reading it reciting it and wrestling with these words but continuing to suggest that we include this kind of frustrated angry feeling that we get when we've been victims or somebody we know has been victims uh, we take all that to god in prayer hmm. i appreciate the way you're tackling these passages, Jerome, it's really helpful with when thinking about these things. Um, so the next question here is looking at the Canaanites, because um, this is very, very contentious, and lots of people yeah. use this and talk about this, um, even building up to this. So um, what's the conquest story in Canaan all about? And questions like, did God actually command the slaughter of men, women, and children, or a just war? Yeah. Or like, what's going on here, Jerome? Um, so curious yeah. what your thoughts sure. are. Sure, yeah. Um, well, yeah, so this is a complicated question, isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, I think early on you use the term genocide. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I think that's not an appropriate term for this, however we interpret it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's something else. Uh, and the practice that's being described uh, is um, sometimes referred to as the ban or putting people under the ban. It's the mm -hmm. idea that seems to be fairly common in the ancient Near East, or at least we know it from a couple places in the Bible and from a, uh, a handful of texts outside the Bible from Israel's neighbors. Uh, the, the practice was, or the idea was, that uh, if God helps you win a, a victory, you don't take the spoils of victory, you turn them over to God. Mm -hmm. And the way to turn the human spoils over to God is to offer them almost like a sacrifice. You just kill them all instead of taking them prisoner uh, or, um, you know, men taking women and making them their wives, all that. Uh, and, and then possessing all of their, um, their, their jewelry, whatever. Uh, you don't do any of that. You just destroy them all. So uh, that's not genocide. It's still horrible, isn't it? Uh, in the way it sounds, but that's what it is. And it's a practice that we know. Um, so what do we make of this? Uh, did God really command Israelites to do this? Well, I can't answer that question. I think when we get to heaven, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll ask God. Uh, but in a way it doesn't, uh, or another question is, did the Israelites really do this? And that's one we can't really answer either. Uh, we can't answer, did they do this in, in the way that the book of Joshua sort of suggests they did? Uh, we can't really answer that uh, because we weren't there. We don't have historical records to tell us that. But uh, several important things about this. First of all, uh, while the plain sense of the text suggests in Joshua 1 to 12 that the Israelites uh, did put under the ban the Canaanites. Uh, it, there are only a couple of passages where it happens, and where it happens, we don't know anything about these people. They're nameless, faceless, but where we do encounter Canaanites who are named who are real characters in the story, if you will, uh, they're not killed at all. One of the examples of, of them is Rahab the harlot, in, uh, who shows up first in Joshua 2, and then again uh, in the story of the conquest of Jericho uh, in Joshua 6. Uh, Rahab is preserved along with her family. Same thing for the Gibeonites uh, over in chapter 9. Now, both of them sort of trick their way into a covenant with these Israelites who were invading the land. And the Israelites are bound to obey. But isn't that interesting that, uh, that, that that's more important than killing Canaanites? It's this agreement that they are, are able to come to with these Israelite invaders. So we have that. Uh, the stories in Joshua are really complicated, though, historically. And uh, there are a lot of our, uh, well, most archaeologists who study this would say uh, there's no evidence that, the, that this happened 
quite like the Israelite, quite like Joshua 1 to 12 presents. So it may be that this is a story about uh, entering the land in a certain way and living in, in a certain way in the land, but not literally about killing people. And I say that in part because after this story of what seems like just a quick sweep through the land, Joshua and his army conquered it all in the first 12 chapters. The 13th chapter begins, Joshua was old and advanced in years and very much of the land remained to be possessed. And it goes through tribe by tribe, all their territories, they're assigned and they're sent out there to take possession of the land. Well, uh, it doesn't leave much for Joshua to have conquered in his first 12 chapters, you know, maybe nothing for him to have, to have conquered. So the question comes, uh, is, is this really what's going on? Now, uh, let me suggest, it, or if you want, I don't know, you may have a follow-up question to that, but I have several ways we could think about this. No, I think you're, you're on a good pace, yeah. So, um, one Jewish interpretation of this is that, well, this really happened. The Israelites conquered the land just as sort of we seem to read in those first chapters of Joshua, but this is a once-for-all event uh, it's not to be repeated. It's not an example for anybody. The purpose of it was to deliver the land to these people that had been promised the land way back in the story of Abraham. That's one way to take it. The church has typically read it a little different way. They have read it with um, uh, as an emblem of true devotion to God. By emblem, I mean as a symbol. Uh, as a spiritual story, if you will. Uh, the church father Origen was famous for this. He, he said, okay, there is a story about conquering the land and about destroying people, but that's not really what this is about. He, he might have acknowledged that real people died to, at the hands of the Israelites. You know, mm -hmm. uh, something happened, but, but that's not really what the story is telling us, he said. The story is really telling us that uh, we should rid ourselves of impurities, that things that keep us from worshiping God with all our heart, soul, and might. And that those things are represented by the Canaanites. He said, the Canaanites are within. Now, one thing that sort of makes sense uh, of his interpretation, I think, over in Deuteronomy, where the commands first come for Joshua and his armies to do this is in Deuteronomy 7, first couple of verses. Um, I invite your readers uh, just to read through the, the first 11 verses of, of Deuteronomy 7 very closely. Hmm. It starts reminding them that God's going to give them this land. And it says, and, and Moses speaking here, giving them instructions. Moses says, now, when God delivers the land to you, uh, here's how you'll treat the people in the land. Have no mercy on them. Do not make a covenant with, with them, but and he uses this language of the ban. Put them under the ban, man, woman, and child. Okay, that's uh, verse two. Verse three, without missing a beat, says, this is how you should deal with them. Don't intermarry with them. Don't give your sons to their daughters. Don't take their daughters as wives for your sons and so on. And then it goes further. Uh, don't worship their gods, but destroy their religious implements and so on. Now, that raises a real question. Uh, if verse two is a command to kill all these people, um, and you've you've done it. They're all dead. Why do you need need then a command not to intermarry with them? Uh, I mean, one scholar who's treated this, you know, says uh, Riley, uh, you know, corpses don't usually raise the temptation of marriage. Hmm. So uh, the way that reads 
almost suggests that, well, what Origen was saying, you know, has some merit here uh, as the way it was intended to be read uh, as, as a symbol of uh, not of real, killing real people, but of purging your own life, your own heart of the impurities that are in it. Uh, whether that's the original intention or not, that's the way the church has passed it on and the way the church has found it useful to interpret it. Uh, I mean, maybe we should recognize that most pastors, when they get up to preach, are interpreting a, a passage from the Bible and they're doing something with it that uh, interprets it figuratively. Otherwise, it doesn't really make any sense to us. Uh, it, it'll just be a history lesson. You know, if we take that as history, it'll just be a history lesson or some ancient set of instructions that have nothing to do with us. But uh, what we believe is that, no, this is a living, breathing document. It's the word of God for us. And so as the word of God for us, it speaks to us. What does it say to us? It surely doesn't tell us to go out and kill uh, all the residents uh, of a land uh, or to commit genocide or anything of the sort. Although it has been interpreted that way, as you know, in, in um, American history at times. But I think that was a gross misreading and misinterpretation of the passage. Uh, you know, uh, it, um, it interestingly in, in Joshua, uh, as the story of the conquest, the people who get God's anger are all Israelites. Uh, people like Rahab and the Gibeonites uh, are objects of God's compassion and they're folded into the Israelite community because they have a greater sense of who God is and God's power and God, that God ought to be worshiped than some of the Israelite characters. Um, the main one being Achan in, uh, in Joshua chapter seven who doesn't follow these commands, uh, keeps some of the spoils of the battle for himself, you know, and he and his whole family are put to death. Um, so the, the Canaanites are, don't come off quite as, um, as badly as we sometimes think when we read very, very closely in these mm -hmm. stories. I appreciate that, um, Jerome. So I have one more question for you, and then we might be able to squeeze in one or two live questions before we wrap up here. Sure. Um, but I think some people might object to like in a view that's similar to like origins, like some sort of spiritualizing view, where um, it says, "Well, that just goes against like a plain reading of the text. It doesn't seem like it's just like mm -hmm. it seems like it's just like modern sensibility is kind of being thrown on these things." Um, so how would you respond to that kind of objection, Jerome? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, it's not a modern sensibility uh, or mm -hmm. in the third century. Yeah. Okay. So if anything, uh, it's it's uh, rediscovering something that Origen saw as crucial for scripture. Um, Augustine came just after Origen, uh, famously said every passage in the Bible teaches us in one way or another to either love God with all our heart, soul, and might, or to love our neighbor as ourselves, every single one. It's yeah. a pretty good rule for how to read scripture. You know, again, these ancient writers are trying to help us understand what the Bible is there to do for us. Mm -hmm. And so they recognized that there is a, what some call plain sense of the text. There's a surface reading. But what they said was, okay, there's a surface reading but that's not why this is preserved for us. It's preserved for us to understand one of these two things at every, at every um, occasion. And so our task as interpreters then is to figure out how that's true. And so the symbolic interpretation or spiritual interpretation was meant to do that. So that's the first thing. Uh, it's not modern sensibilities. It's really reading theologically, reading it as the word of God. Um, if, if anything, I think this insisting that it's all just like a history lesson, sort of, here's what the Israelites really did. That's really the modern take on it. 
Um, the second thing I would say is, I was suggesting a moment ago that we read very closely. If we really believe this is the word of God, then we can't just skim over it. We have to read every word. We have to read how the words and sentences are put together. If we really do that, then there's a lot for us to explain about what happened and what's being commanded or suggested to us in these texts. Um, and, and it's harder and harder when you read closely to get a clear command or instruction or even a report about just killing mass numbers of people. Um, and the example from Deuteronomy 7 is a prime example of that. Um, read closely and the symbolic interpretation begins to make more sense. So uh, do the Israelites really kill a bunch of people? I'm sure they did. I mean, they went to war. Uh, wars are part of the stories of the Old Testament. But our um, authority, if you will, is not what the Israelites did. It's what we're instructed to do and to be in Scripture. And I think it's important for us to separate those two things out. And I think that's what Origen and Augustine and people like that were trying to do. So uh, we can, as many have, read these stories as stories of people really killing people. But uh, when we ask what are they preserved for, what are they trying to tell us to do, and who are they trying to tell us to be, then uh, they're not there for that purpose. They're there for some other purpose that's higher than that. Mm. That really helps a lot. So thanks, Jerome. Um, we probably have time for one question here um, from Wesley, okay. which says, um, is this view different or how is this view different than um, Paul Copan's view that the Old Testament is hyperbolic? So I don't know if you're familiar with um, Paul Copan's work um, with regards to like the warfare text in the Bible. I don't know that, but uh, the language in the Old Testament is hyperbolic. I mean, I know what hyperbolic is. So I think no. I know a little bit about what Copan's view is, just not too, I'm not super well informed, but it's going to be something like when you're looking at like these warfare texts in the Bible, um, say where like God's commanding them to go take out the Canaanites or something like that. It's not actually like every man, woman, and children, but it is a command from God to go um, attack the Canaanites to mm -hmm. take maybe like say like soldiers or something like that and some sort of like just war almost like situation. So I think that's a rough sketch well. of his view. Okay, if we're going to take that position, then we're not really reading the story of Joshua anymore, are we? We're, we're, we're making it say something it doesn't say. I mean, we have to deal with these statements, uh, every man, woman, or child, like Deuteronomy 7, that's what it says. Mm -hmm. So, so how, do we, how do we say then that's not really what it means? You know, we can say that it's to be read figuratively. I think that's a lot easier than to say the language is hyperbolic. I mean, who determines that it's hyperbolic? And hyperbolic means exaggerated, you know, um, overblown or something like that. So, I mean, we might well say, okay, these grand victories, you know, uh, Joshua's army is unstoppable. Well, we, we never know an Israelite army quite like that, I don't think. You know, uh, maybe we say that's hyperbolic as Israel remembers it. But that's different from saying that the text somehow says men, women and children, but it doesn't really mean it. You see, I, so I don't know. Um, I kind of have a problem with that interpretation for that reason, because I think we have to take the words very seriously. Uh, it, it's trying to get around the problem, but still make it like this historical account. And, and you just can't do both things. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I really, I appreciate that, Jerome. I think that's a good, a clear answer. Um, and yeah, we get to come to our conclusions and really think seriously about these things. It's super important. Sure. Um, so we're right around the end of our time, Jerome. So do you have any kind of like last thoughts, things you need to say, um, any kind of remarks that you want to bring up here? Well, I just want to say first, thanks again for the conversation. I really appreciate that. And uh, 
putting these kinds of conversations out there, I think is really important. Uh, not everybody will agree with me or what I've said, my take on this. And, um, and there's plenty of room for disagreement about this. Uh, but I think it's important that we work at it. And I think it's important that we, we agree that the God of the Bible is not only not violent, uh, but, but is, uh, taking us to a world without violence and inviting us to come along. Uh, that's the example of Jesus, but it's also the example we see in the Old Testament. When, when the, the Israelites come to recognize that their weapons uh, won't save them. This is all over the Psalms. You know, uh, the king can't win battles by his own might, by his own armies. You have to rely on those things. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, when you appoint a king, you know, uh, it says, uh, don't, uh, he, he's not to uh, accumulate horses and chariots. Why? Because those are implements of war. You can't rely on them. Uh, God is the one who holds our future. So if we recognize that, you know, then we can, we can disagree about how we interpret these texts. But I think those are pretty, pretty uh, clear messages of Scripture, both testaments. Are, are giving us that message. And they culminate in, in Jesus' sacrifice for us, refusing to take up arms. But that message is, uh, is anticipated by these texts that declare that taking up arms is not the answer anyway, all along. So uh, read the text, read it closely, learn these passages, put them in your heart and work for the peace that God is working to bring to the world. That, well, that's, thank you. that's what I'd say. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jerome. It's been a pleasure to have you on and hear your perspective because I really value it. And I hope everyone listening to it as well, because this is very important stuff and we need to really um, think about this. So thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Um, and to everyone listening, I just want to say thank you and for tuning in. Hopefully you found this edifying, constructive, um, and worth just worth thinking about. Um, so encourage you to subscribe if you haven't already. Um, you can subscribe to here in the projects on YouTube or podcast. Um, I have a link down below for Professor Creech so you can see um, all his great work and everything going on. So you can check that out on your way out of here. Um, and finally, just thank you to our patrons who make the show possible. So if you enjoy the show, you can support us at patreon.com. So you can apologize. But Jerome, one last time, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be with you. It's good to be with you as well. And thank you everyone who tuned in with us today and is going to be tuning in through the recording. Have a good one and God bless. Take care.